I begin today by acknowledging the traditional custodians of a land upon which this podcast is recorded and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may be listening here today. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Arcanum. It is me, your host, Jessica Ann. And before we get into this absolutely stellar interview with the one and only Angel Phoenix, I wanted to share that the release of this interview has been fast-tracked because at this very moment, Angel is in the process of fundraising $100,000 to support her in creating a dog shelter in Bali to prevent the destruction of hundreds of stray dogs and to support them to be rehomed and rehabilitated to full health. So if you want to get on board to supporting her efforts, we do talk about it later on in the podcast. What I will share is in the show notes, there is a link that you can go to directly to donate towards her fundraising efforts. And it is set up so that these funds are going directly to angels so that the funds are going to where they need to go to be creating the most impact. So highly encouraging you to do that if, of course, you are able. Otherwise, another way to support this effort is to circulate this episode, to circulate Angel's cause so that we can support her in reaching her target to make sure that these good boys and good girls go to better homes and to better lives. So without further ado, this is my interview with Angel Phoenix. I was saying to today's guest, this has been on my vision board for the last three years to have this conversation with her. So this is beyond, you know, this is like kid in a candy shop moment for me. Today, I am joined by the incredible Angel Phoenix, which you know, if you are yet to enter her vortex, she is just something else. She is the esoteric erotic entrepreneur. She is Money Gen 3.5 Life, which as a Money Gen 3.5, it's just like, oh, thank you for existing. She's as Aquarius as fuck. She is, she's made a habit of seducing the universe to cater to her every whim. And now she has made it so that she gets paid to do just that. Welcome, Angel Phoenix. <laughs> that was so good. Thank you so much for saying those things. It sounds so much better coming out of your mouth. I also will say, oh, that is a pregnant dog in the background who has nausea at the moment, everybody. It is not me coughing up a hairball. I am so excited to be here and to have these conversations, especially with another 3-5, because if there's anything that we know how to do is be emotionally charged and energetically moved um, and burn every bridge around us while we build a new future. And it's only another lunatic like you who will get that game. My heart's about to explode out of my chest right now. I'm like, absolutely. It's like I was having to filter myself when Angel and I were about to go live. I'm like, I have so many things I just want to tell you and like the reason why I'm just so glad you exist. So, you know, this is probably going to be about a half an hour of fangirling, but we will get into some good stuff in and amongst all you of that. Are, and let's just make this very clear. It, this is entirely reciprocal. And I've told you this many times on your post. So I'm like, oh, deep exhale. Like, yeah, the value in possibility agents who model the kind of purpose you feel called to lean into, the kind of purpose that everyone else thinks you are mental for trying to honor or thinks that you are evil for trying to honor. It is the hugest breath of relief. So yeah, entirely reciprocal. Appreciate that so much, love. Um, I remember back when you first came into my vortex. And so I'm going to tell my version of when Angel entered my world and then she can talk about how her entry into the world because it's a fucking epic story. I remember, I think I found you back when I first started working with Kezia, Kezia Lee. Yeah. So back in the day, she's like, oh, there's this angel Phoenix. Like, you know, I have to follow her. 
And I remember like I was watching you and I would get triggered in the best possible way. I was just like, I remember crying on a call to Kezia going, if I was fully expressed, this is who I'd be. (laughs) So just that fact that from the very inception of my coaching business, you've been that, I guess, that lighthouse for like, hey, like you can be multi-passionate, you can be yourself, you can be unorthodox and create something that's just so radically you. It's just, yeah, you've been that lighthouse for me for a very long time. So what was your Um, intro? Go on. Sorry. sorry. I just had to take myself off mute to say that I'm so moved by that. That is absolutely wild. Sorry. My apologies. No, that was perfect. I'm probably going to mute myself as well because it's super noisy back here as well, but I don't have Bali as an excuse. It's just where I live. Um, so, <laughs> so what was, what was your journey? Like I, like I know it started off with the, like you getting onto the Warps tour, which like, as you know, an old punk metalhead myself, I'm like, how the hell did someone create that as a thing in their life? Like, and then obviously grown to this multifaceted empire that you now have. I'd love for you to share a bit about your journey. <laughs> Three, five emo girls for the win. Okay. Yes. Thank you. All right. You've asked a pretty broad question, and I don't know how deep you want to go in that. How far do you want us to unravel this? Because the esoteric, erotic entrepreneur thing has truly, and I'm not exaggerating, there's like no part of this that is hyperbolic at all. Since I'm six years old has been something that has just... informed every part of my life I don't know why I don't know where perhaps it's nature and it's nurture and it is a thousand lives before this or destiny I don't know what it is you want to call it but truly by the time I was let's say 12 I knew and for everybody listening I really mean this this is wasn't like I started professionally singing at four years old like no like this is genuinely 12 years old thinking like I, I I'm in a dysfunctional house we're like extremely not you know well off at all my dad was very controlling financially abusive my mom was depressed she had PTSD from birth and all sorts of other things um I lived in a small town in Montreal a small suburb super Italian Catholic I was raised in an extremely religious environment and I you know, had been talking to spirits since I was a little kid. I started seeing dead people around the age of eight uh, when I would kind of try to find my place in the world with this ambition and this this foresight. All I could find was the church. That's all that existed to me. There was nothing really that could speak a language that could meet me where I'm at. And when you think about it, the church is probably like what, you know, the most capitalist entrepreneur mogul example I could have had at the time, right? And then, of course, like the Holy Spirit, et cetera, et cetera. I just kind of grew into this habit of leaning into that area of my life because it's the one place that felt safe or felt sane. Uh, And I basically did communion and I did catechism, uh, which is something you do at second grade and then in fifth grade. And then by the time essentially I was in sixth grade, I was teaching catechism, which was, you know, teaching other kids essentially how how to move through those processes. Um, And then by the time I finished sixth grade, I was speaking on stage at the church. So that was basically sort of this, I don't even think I've ever had this conversation on a podcast, but these are really major formative years. And even though they ended up being hyper traumatic, 
they also absolutely set the tone and gave me the reference points I needed to later on in life kind of look back and say, okay, I get it. You know, this is kind of where this was alive in me for the first time. Now, in catechism specifically, this is where sort of the ball drops and um, things start to get weird and I sort of start to open my eyes. No coincidence around the same time that I'm about to start bleeding. Um, this one of the kids in my group asked me, you know, what happens if you masturbate? And, um, you know, to me, that was something that was totally normal, but also something that I started to wrestle with aggressively after this comment, because I went to one of the head teachers and I said, Hey, there's this little boy. And he's asked me this question. And she said, well, you tell him that if he touches himself, he goes to hell. And I could not reconcile that, you know, imagine my like anti-authority Aquarian, collective minded. I knew that if I told this boy this, it would like probably ruin the rest of his life. And I ended up walking out of that sort of responsibility from memory a few months later. Um, and that's when I started really being at war with my own essence, my, my passion, my capability, my hormones and it's when I really started to doubt myself really from that year of my life. It's when I started to, you know, put bars of soap up myself because I thought that I was, you know, going to hell for touching myself. I would go on these weird things where I would, you know, touch myself and then close all the lights in the house and then avoid every mirror and go into the bathroom and avoid the mirror in the bathroom and then like beg for forgiveness while I was washing my hands. And like all of these things sort of keep preening the way of like, you know, you have this religious undertone everywhere it is you go, then everything's toxic at home. And of course, my body coming into my bleed at nine years old started expressing these like really physical symptoms. So I started, you know, get, I got full blown eczema through my whole body. I was itching. I was bleeding constantly. I was on steroids and cortisol injections and they put me on birth control at nine years old. And so really from sixth grade till about I want to say 13, things were really, really, really hectic in my life because I could see where the world was pulling me into one direction and where I wanted to pull myself. So at around 13, I mentioned this to you guys in the course, but I ended up, you know, this is, we sound like we're a hundred years old, but the internet and technology, this was like its inception time, right? This wasn't something that for someone like me, who's very much an emotional, energetic, exhibitionist, expressionist, I had nowhere to talk about how I felt except prayer. So for me to be given a tool like live journal and to actually get to like talk to the world instead of some like wrathy man in the sky, I was like, hallelujah, like, wow, there's an option here, right? Other than me kind of like inner turmoil, wrestling myself, torturing. So I, my experiences on live journal and meeting other people and like, you know, MSN messenger and like age sex location and like flirting and being up at all nights, like using things like AOL. And this really opened up my world to think, and where, where are we going? Like from a futurist perspective, maybe I could create the life of my dreams here if I just lean into the tech that's available. So I entered this contest and I, I won. It was a content creation contest. And that really just sets the tone for everything that happens next. And I started really like pushing myself into what technology is. Now, this is the story that I haven't told anybody on a podcast. I, when I turned nine, 
became so hyperpsychic, it started to freak me out. This is something that's in our family anyways. Um, but my mother walked into uh, my room one day and I was like, you know, talking to the Holy Spirit. She thought I was possessed. And that's when I decided that I would remove my spirituality completely away from my family and do my own thing. And I have the craft to thank for that. Thank you very much. Those were like major formative years of my life when the craft came out because that showed me that there was this whole other world of spirituality that existed and all of this other this other energy available, if you like. So I started getting into tarot and just like regular pagan stuff, right? And like regular Wiccan stuff. And I used to have no shit people lining up outside of my house around the corner of my house to get tower readings because we would party at my house all the time. And so there'd be like 30, 40 kids there constantly. My mom had this thing where like, she'd rather we partied at home than elsewhere, which was amazing. And I would just sit in my brother's room in this dark room and read cards for people and do all kinds of stuff. And this went on for a few years. But one day this guy comes in and uh, clear as day. I pulled out this card and I got a message about him killing somebody. We were very young, okay? So I did not have the capability to look at something like that and be like, cool, I can just manage this. But if you know what I, I, I know you know what I mean, but for the audience, if you don't know, when spirit source, whatever you want to call it, tells you something and you don't listen or you pretend you didn't hear it or you disregard it, they don't like that. So I knew right away that I'd have to say something. So I basically just said, look, I'm seeing this thing and it's a heavy death card. And is there maybe something that's happened that you want to talk about? And he ends up starting to solve. This was like a six foot five, like maybe 12 at the time. I don't know about how him and his brother were walking home at night and under this bridge in RDP, these guys jumped them, they mugged them and he, they were about to kill his brother and he had, he used a pen and put a pen in this guy's throat and never knew if the guy died or not. And he had been carrying this whole thing his whole life. And so although the subject of it wasn't, you know, didn't feel malicious or anything, it was really intense for me. And I started to get, I don't know, maybe a bit freaked out, especially because my dad would tell me things like his experiences with Uija boards and whatnot. And then even through backing off, I still kind of kept my hands in things. So you read your boards, seances, you know, all those creepy little things you do as a kid. My best friend at the time and her little cousin, they were always over at my house. And one night we did um, a Uija session in, it's so funny when I say these stories because I haven't visited these, the memory recesses in such a long time. Anyways, we were in my bedroom, we we're doing this Uija board and, um, it started to get really freaky. Uh, so we decided that we were going to throw the Ouija board in this closet, one of my closets, which you should never do. And we opened it an hour later and 200 moths came out, like maybe 300, maybe 400. I have no idea. A whole closet full of moths, moths that were not there before. And that even now I'm just talking about, it gives me goosebumps. It felt so heavy and so yucky. Like I was 16, by the way, at this point, it felt so intense and so heavy. <clears throat> I can't explain it. Um, but 
my best friend's little cousin who was there ended up dying a few months later, she was murdered. And that sort of kicked off this thing where I decided that like, it was too much for me. And I didn't want to be that accessible or see things or be that powerful or whatever you want to call it. And at 16, this is where I decided that I was going to like shut down my powers. This is an important precursor for what happens next. So at 16, the same year that I decided to stop caring about magic. It's the first year I went into business. And so you see subconsciously, I could feel that there was this desire to move this energy, but I didn't know where to move that creative energy if it wasn't, you know, in this kind of spiritual, really intense capacity. So instead what I did is I went through the business route because for everybody listening to me, business is everything esoteric and erotic and, and magical because it is this weaving weaving of of everything that's come before us and everything that's here now and everything that's going to move forward and it's the way our ancestors took care of each other and supported each other and grew things and built things and what we call entrepreneurship now was community back then right and so we moved from this sort of you know bartering and, and baking and giving to this sort of capitalist exchange but the community remains the same and I think a lot of women struggle with this kind of entrepreneurship part because it feels masculine. But when you think about it, we're doing the exact same thing as we did before, women weaving magic. Now we're just being paid for it in a way that our, you know, OG matrilineage lines were able to manage quite beautifully, right? In the passing of land and the passing of titles that were taken away from us. I think that's like an important little thing to note. So at 16, I decided that I was going to um keep using technology and socials and things that were coming out at that time. And first I started a dog walking business called Mac and me, of course. Uh, and then I started a clothing line and that was Lucy Loveless. And that was basically this kind of like merch line and 10% of the proceeds would go to the RSPCA. And I managed to somehow, you know, uh, convince the warp tour to let me come and sell stuff on the tour, which, you know, um, nobody knew I was 16 years old. Nobody. Everyone thought that I was at least 18. Uh, they kind of a lot gave me this like huge gig. We can talk about another time. Um, and I was just like, fuck it. I'm going to, I'm going to do this thing. So, you know, the, the adventure and the doing things on a whim and seeking the fun and seeking the pleasure, these are all hyper magical you know, and in Aries season, that's what I love because it's all about really owning our desires and taking initiative for what it is we want. That was really my blood ritual. Because my period had been taken away from me at such a young age, I feel when I really came into myself, when I really moved into my Aries season, it was my era of initiation and going after what the fuck it is I wanted and understanding my desires and honoring them with a level of discipline that the technology at the time could make available to me that my parents could not make available to me. You know, nobody could pay for my college. Nobody could pay for my university. I had to just figure out a way to step into my potential. And I started realizing that there was this energy that I was dancing with that was dancing with me. So around 16, I would want something and I would believe it was already mine. And then it would land in my lap. And I started to get nicknamed Horseshoe. Because people in my life couldn't understand why, you know, when I said I was going to do something, it happened, right? Or when I wanted something, it, it actuated itself. And whether there was a lover or was, 
you know, we had a pharmacy called Pharmaprix and they used to give away these like hampers full of makeup, you know, tons of people would enter. I would win the hamper radio contest. When you call in, right. In thousands of callers, I would get in twice in a row. Um, I would win contests to like go to MTV and ask Mill and Colin, like interview Mill and Colin or like just all these things where people were like, what the actual hell is up this woman's ass? And that also, you know, some people, by the way, Jess will be like, oh, that's like fake it till you make it. But for me, it was really like calling the universe on its like bluffing. Does that make sense? Like, I'm just like, listen. I'm not going to let you tell me what it is I am. I'm going to tell you what it is I am. And then you can dance with me. So whether it was using blogging to then basically say I was a journalist and then use my journalism to get into every concert VIP backstage. But you like, I, to me, it was just about, no, this is the reality I'm building. And so I'm going to use what's available to me right now to make that happen. So what people thought was luck was actually me diligently, even in my immature, you know, like emotional, you know, moronic stage of life where we all go through, I was still able to say, oh, there's something at play here. Like I'm definitely dancing with this thing. And you make so many mistakes when you're in your teens. Like you may, I mean, we make so many mistakes now, but I cannot believe what I was able to make happen during those, that period of my life. So I came home from Warped Tour and I just told my mom, mom, I'm moving to Hawaii. And she said, I'm sorry. And she literally laughed in my face. What do you mean you're moving? First of all, you're 16 years old. Calm the fuck down. Secondly, you have no visa. Calm the fuck down. And thirdly, with what money? I was like, watch me. Now, this was my Moana moment. I had like, literally, the, why did I want to go to Hawaii? I have no idea. What was pressing me to go to Hawaii? I have no idea. With what? Don't know. But I wanted to um, make this happen. My dad was a hairdresser. He had been a hairdresser a really long time. I was working in a salon since I was like nine, right? Total child fucking slave labor. But thanks, dad. Um, and I was like, well, I've been doing people's hair. I used to do people's hair on Warped Tour. That was really fun. Just remember to tell you about that story. And I was like, I'm just going to call salons and get them to hire me as a hairdresser. Now, in Hawaii, you need a license. You need a license. You need a visa. You need a visa. Do you see what I mean? Like, there's no how this was going to happen. But I found this shop. It was called Tattoolicious. And it was half tattoo shop, half a Veda salon. Absolutely fucking stunning. And I managed to convince the owner to fly me to Hawaii on his dime. Let me work. Pay him back. All this kind of stuff. And I remember telling my mom, like, I got the job and I'm going to Hawaii. And her being like, what is happening? Like, what is actually happening right now? And that's when I knew, I think I was, excuse me, 17. I can make anything happen if I believe it and I see it through and I don't accept no for an answer. And I think the universe loves an audacious woman. The universe responds to audacity because audacity is the language of destiny, right? To me, the universe and that energy rewards audacity in a way that's like, oh, finally, someone who has the balls to play the game. I've always felt that way. I've never, ever felt like I was taking advantage of the universe. I never felt like I was like dicking around with destiny. I, I always felt like I was on a level playing field with what that thing is. And it's so important for me. So sorry. That's the gaggle of dogs.
For everybody tuning in, I'm in Bali. I have a thousand dogs. There are also a thousand dogs outside. No exaggeration. Um, if this is really loud in your eardrums, my apologies. Anyways, we'll move on. I always felt like I was on an, a level playing field with the universe. And that's just a really important distinction for me to make. It felt available to me. It felt accessible. And it truly did feel universal. And it opened up this whole playing field that I did not think existed prior to that. So this just sets off this domino effect. And I like to look at it as, you know, synchronicity and serendipity, my two favorite lovers, how the universe took me from, I have no fucking idea what I'm doing to exactly where it is I need to be over and over and over and over again. And trauma not being the, the defining moment, trauma just being this bridge between one opportunity to the next, right? And so sometimes shit would be heavy and chaotic and devastating and discouraging and confusing, but those moments weren't the moments of my life. They were the in-between moments that just kind of like led me to that next thing. Like, you know, a ninja warrior obstacle course. Like that's kind of like what it felt like, just like intermittent between these amazing things. So I went from, you know, starting this business to that business to this business and then studying in between because I love learning so much. So I would just kind of put myself in situations and learn a bunch of random things to kind of satiate this, which again, later in life as a three, five, I have grown to understand like, this is a major part of what I'm here to do. Um, and then, you know, thinking that I've, I've got shit figured out and I'm having fun and I'm using social media and I'm creating these amazing opportunities for myself. I'm speaking on tours and I'm working in suicide prevention and I'm still working with animals and, um, getting to travel the world and do all these crazy things with like literally absolutely no money. Uh, and then meeting somebody while I was in Australia, getting pregnant within three months of dating. And this kind of takes me in this whole other journey where, you know, motherhood is, is silent entrepreneurship and it is slave labor and it is nobody's paying you for that work you're doing. And that introduced me to a whole other kind of magic, which is unconditional love, which people forget is part of the magic of entrepreneurship. Because if you're not sweating for it and bleeding for it, do you even love it, right? To me, it's not the pay slip that makes me keep doing what it is I do. It's how fucking obsessed I am with it, just like motherhood. So motherhood brought me into this other initiation of business, which was, you know, sometimes you're gonna have to do things 24 hours in a row and you're gonna wanna pull your hair out and your teeth might feel like they're falling out and nothing makes sense but you're going to get some rest and tomorrow you're going to go back again, right? Not because you're a glutton for punishment, but because you love that thing, that person, that scenario so much. And I grew in such a way through these initiations of pregnancy and of birth and of motherhood that gave me this, oh fuck, I didn't die doing that thing. I can take on the world now. And I feel like I mentioned this a lot in the work that I did in the maternal space, like watching women give birth was like, you know, watching the bridge between here and the ether. Like you, you watched a woman and her baby become this like living, breathing Chinese finger trap where you're, you're seeing between parallel dimensions and there's nothing more poetic. You're seeing this baby open its eyes for the first time. And, and it's, you're seeing this woman open her eyes for the first time because everything she thought she knew before that is dead now. And that whole experience was so shamanic and so fucking unbelievable 
that to see that over and over and over again, it really gave me the drive and the passion and the kind of fervor to just keep learning more, keep asking more questions, keep being curious. And I turned that into a career. Um, I don't know how I managed to do that in other, you know, in any other reason than just I'm obsessed. I really am truly obsessed with that line of work, the female body, the female mind, the, the everything. I just froth over it. Um, using social media the whole way through, using content creation the whole way through, using writing, using expression, basically making every ancestor I've ever had proud because I've just kind of been like, well, how can I be even more, you know, untethered? <laughs> Like, how can I embrace being even more of myself? Like, how can I become more of myself? How can I ask more of myself? And motherhood taught me to be braver in the face of that. Universe kind of beckoned me to be more audacious. And the more vulnerable I am and the more audacious I am and the more brave I am, the more things go my way. And so here I am at 37, um, you know, living the kind of like most intimate experience of that, like esoteric erotic entrepreneurship and to me all that means is a woman working for life and life working for her pause for a second there that was incredible and i love the fact that you you went deep and you went there because there was just so many nuggets of gold like i just yeah so so many goosebumps hearing you speak to motherhood is something that like i i've been a stepmom to two kids for five years i haven't biologically had my own kids however i think that the lens of motherhood that you bring it's just so empowering hence why i often like tagging my clients in your posts about motherhood it's like this radical permission piece what what feels vulnerable to you now you're someone that is so open where where do you feel your edges are? You bitch. Yeah. Because <laughs> you know they're there. Okay. Uh, I say that, by the way, so affectionately, everybody. I just know that she knows that I know that she knows. So there, there are absolutely limits. Limits. Let's just make something clear. I don't feel limited by anything but myself. Anything that I claim is limiting me is simply something I've given permission to limit me. So I am very well aware that any area of my life I'm, I feel there's limitation. I've absolutely co-created that. So it's not, a, it's not like it's a problem, right? That I feel I can fix. Let's just say that. I will say that society, the fabric of society, patriarchal society, the realities of, for example, um, how can I say this without shooting myself in the foot? I have this fear just that if I am too much of myself online, my kids will get taken away from me. And I have, I have, um, so my great grandmother, she basically, there's a long, long line of really horrible traumatic shit, uh, in my family, but it's literally one single woman after the next. So it's either like, um, husband's dead, husband left, um, husband's abusive, husband is like literally one after the next. Uh, and my great grandmother, she, they were so, they were so broke. They were so, so, so broke that she started making moonshine. Um, and she hid this moonshine under the floor so that she could literally feed her children. Uh, and somebody dobbed on her and they came and they took all of her kids one day. Um, and it's always been this thing in my mind of like, 
I've seen my mother, what, you know, what she went through, how hard she worked. And then having kind of myself move through a situation where, you know, unfortunately this is going to sound super brash, but because somebody comes inside of you, they have a right to your life for the rest of your life. It's actually really, really frightening. And there are aspects of me that are careful about what I'm fearful of, because the more fear I feed something, the more I'll, you know, the way I can manifest my dream life, I can manifest my worst nightmare. And I have to be very, if I'm having a bad day, I'll have five things happen. Just bad. That'll come out of nowhere. Cause that's how powerful my vortex is. And I'm aware of it, but fuck, I'm afraid of a lot of things. And it's the, there's been behind the scenes stuff, things that I've had to like cut just, cut, you know, that no one will never know why, because I was so afraid of what would happen. Um, information being collated for, for no reason other than me being a sexually expressed woman for no other reason than, you know, me being vulnerable online. And so there's, there are limits air quotes on things that I say, because there are conversations I'd love to have that maybe I will one day that right now I'm not quite ready to have. And it's funny you, you say this because about two weeks ago, I've had this thing that I've wanted to chat about for so long so long and I think I'm finally going to but I'm trying to figure out how to say it without getting in trouble air quotes so anything that has to do with my fear of having my kids taken away for sure um and I think the second limit is like you know when I'm having a bad day when I'm having a sad day oh my god would I love to blast my haters with what I know like that's kind of my like this when my ego's having a bad day, I really have to be like, okay, like no, just don't say anything because that's the kind of other limit I find where um we live in a culture where the person complaining has the airtime and there's a lot of kind of victim narcissism, but then the person that is being defamed or et cetera, et cetera, um, they're not allowed to have a say, defend themselves, communicate, because it makes things worse, right? So in that area, hence why I'm going to start an emotional support group for influencers at some stage, I think like that's sort of the two areas of my life that I really struggle with of like, oh, fuck, you know, if I say something, what's going to happen here? And then if I say something, oh my God, will this destroy my career? So those are the two limits-ish. <laughs> going to say that because like even coming back to that piece you said about audacity before I still see you showing up so powerfully for those things that verge on those lines of those things you communicated mm -hmm. particularly as a woman that is sexually expressed I would love for you to talk a little bit around uh, mm -hmm. the role that you have in educating people around sexuality yeah so this is something that I uh again since I'm six years old <laughs> um I won't talk about that here, but I will talk to you about that later because it's really interesting. All the girls of the neighborhood, we were all really young. Like they would, they would come to me and ask me questions like, what the hell is I going to know as a six-year-old girl? But there was something about that energy that I found so interesting. Um, the first business plan I ever wrote was for a feminist brothel when I was 16 years old. Like that was, you know, I had a, I had a mistress name. I was putting up Craigslist ads. Like I was like, I'm going to create a feminist brothel. Like I was dead set serious on that. 
I really feel that, especially in terms of being a manifesting generator with a sacral authority, my womb space and my my kind of like, you know, the core of my cunt, that energy there has to be exercised, not exercised like demons, but exercised and stimulated to so that I don't spontaneously combust. And because I did not know those things for a long time and suppressed and suppressed and suppressed because of religion, because of this, because of that, I've had... I have so much trauma around my sexuality. I, um, I was bullied so badly about this. I was treated like the harlot. I was kicked out of church for killing a uh, killing. Wow, for kissing a girl like as if I killed somebody. Just like so many things that are so hysterical when you think about them, but at that time were so traumatic. My grandmother was dying. Somebody called her to say that they saw me kissing a girl. Just like just weird. Things where it was always my sexuality being weaponized against me, which obviously led to a lot of like internalized homophobia and shutting down and um, yeah, really, really bizarre. And I found that sex work is actually the place I was able to heal all of that and reclaim all of that energy. And so that to me is like the epitome of entrepreneurship. If we're all being honest with ourselves right now, it's the longest existing industry in the world. It's the most empowering industry in the world. And unfortunately, we live in a time and era where people are... Um, conflating sex trafficking for sex work, meaning like women who are actually doing these things to because they enjoy it and they're taking care of themselves and they have they're independent with the chaos that is the underbelly of all this horrible shit going on. Uh, and then when I got into sex work and I've kind of always dabbled in different things. So whether that was body work or, you know, phone stuff, which was like a really big thing at the time, I loved it. And I loved the way I was able to integrate my, you know, Carolyn Elliott, she's a fucking genius, but she talks about this in Existential Kink. Like, I really allowed myself to integrate these pieces through this, through this stuff. Um, and even, like, it's just always been such a huge part of me. I don't know, I don't know how else to describe that. It's always been there. And I will go as far to say that that's normal. And people who are not experiencing a healthy sex drive are the same people who are experiencing writer's block, are the same people who are experiencing depression, are the same people who are experiencing this kind of like, you know, this like fucking somatic response to being shut down to life. I think that when, you know, it's like the seasons, spring comes and it is never flaccid. If spring arrived flaccid, there would be no summer. You don't see spring coming around and being like, I'm asexual, right? You don't see spring coming around and saying, I need Viagra. Do you get where I'm going with this? Like even on metaphorical, this is not me shitting on anybody who's experiencing these like very real issues or have these very real, I suppose, like types, archetypal sexual types. But that's not normal. So there's uh, the body is always going to be responding to a, to a lack of play with a lack of drive. When there's a lack of pleasure, there's a lack of pursuit. That pursuit is literally the embodiment of moving forward, the thrusting, the phallic nature of life. You want to fuck everything because you have a, this voracious appetite for everything available to you. And the way humans have pathologized 
sexual energy in the same way they've like right, you know righteously gay kept it and everything else it's it's laughable to me i look at the animals it's like do you, i look at the birds and the bees and i look at spring and i think it's so funny like if we try and lobotomize the menstrual cycle which we have with drugs and this and that the cost is fertility you can't bludgeon something until it is so infertile it forgets it's fertile and acts surprised when it's infertile that's the same thing for us. If you bludgeon imagination out of a child's head, it will forget to imagine as an adult. When a little girl is told that being sexual is dirty, that wanting things is horrible, that pursuing anything outside of babies and dicks and bullshit is like, oh my God, you're, you're fucking like whore, you're going to hell. It's pretty natural that most of us are growing up to ask ourselves greater questions about like, actually, who am I? Like, it's not normal that from the belly button down, I've disassociated. And I, I think that the more I get involved in experiences of, uh, you know, birth and death specifically, these like very real human experiences left to intimately know. And I'm talking about when not interrupted and not kind of, you know, fucked around with. Sex, I was never brave enough to to dive deep into it until I went through birth. And then the respect I had for my body made me want to scream it from the rooftops. And every woman I worked with, you know, watching them all go through the same processes, watching them deal with this identity death, you know, after they have children, watching them go through that identity crisis, watching the relationship breakdown, something like 80, 86% of people who divorce do so in the first three years after having a baby, women developing all of these pathologies, all of these illnesses in direct response to lack of sexual energy, seeing directly that, you know, what happens when water stops moving, it becomes stagnant and it attracts infestation and disease. Just like that, when a woman is told not to cry and not to sweat and not to come, she too becomes stagnant. She too then starts to attract disease and infection and all this other stuff. And so I became really passionate about bringing women to this place where it was about sex, but it wasn't about sex. It was so much more, you know, philosophical and, and very like phenomenology of what it is to be a woman in this world, moving through these rituals and altars and, and not having the language for it or not having the support for it. And that kind of led me into what I'm doing now with Pornhub, which um, I don't know if you've seen the, the documentary desk, but it's just definitely going to, explain to people why what happened to me happened to me with the with the BBC in Melbourne when I lost my PayPal account and when all this bad stuff started to happen is that um on a side note if you use Stripe or PayPal or anything else and they think that and this is written into it if they think that you're doing sex work or that you are fortune teller doing magic they have the right to freeze your accounts take all your money everything else right so I haven't felt safe coming out with what I'm doing with Pornhub until Pornhub was able to also sort their own shit out because they've been going through the ringer this entire time. So they just got acquired by somebody else two weeks ago. Uh, then the documentary came out. And so things are much, much better now. And they've, they're making some really major moves. And they've taken me on uh, as maternal sex educator. Um, 
And I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified to do this. I cannot even tell. I'm still terrified to do it. This has been a project that's literally three years in the making. And we kept delaying it and delaying it because we're like, oh, it's not the right time. Not the right time. Not the right time. We have to wait. It was like COVID and this and everything that was happening with Pornhub. And now I feel like I'm being initiated into the work that I dreamt about doing since I was 16 years old. Um, I literally could talk about sex 24 hours a day. I could talk about creativity 24 hours a day. And when people are like, oh, you do so many things. I'm like, I actually don't. It's the same two things showing up in every fucking thing it is that I do. So yeah, I'm multidimensional, but am I really multi-passionate? Because all I'm doing is, is like fully exercising the passions I was born with, which are the carnal ones and the creative ones. I was just smiling as you were speaking. I was like, I reckon most people that listen to this podcast regularly probably think I have this, uh, I guess, not so hidden agenda because pretty much every other person I have on has got some degree of like tantra training <laughs> or sexuality training or eros. It's just like, you know, it's hiding in plain sight because for me it was much like you were saying, the deepest healing I had with my relationship with my body. Like I grew up having body dysmorphia, eating disorders, all of this stuff, got into the fitness industry thinking that was going to be the thing to heal my relationship. And it wasn't until I actually finally reconciled my relationship with my sex that I actually finally loved my body. So, and from that space of having that openness with that energy and being able to run that, like that's one of the biggest pieces to, to magic and to manifestation. So for sure. Hey freaking men by the way i also did that thing where all the body dysmorphia let's not even go into it all the eating issues all the this and i thought fitness was going to be the bridge right so i you know i i love physical activity don't get me wrong i absolutely love it but i just went hard on weightlifting because it's the only place that i could get the you know like 50 squats with a full load was as intense as getting, you know, railed for three hours. So to me, I was like, okay, this is where I'm going to integrate my strength and my body awareness. But there's something, there's still that missing piece and that intimacy with self and everything else. And that kind of, it's why, you know, I went into this sort of self-reverence. It was kind of my play on words of like taking back what the church took away from me, kind of creating a church and a place of worship in my own body. And that's really when I started healing so fucking much. So that was probably 2019, 2020. And then COVID happened. And then again, like another Phoenix moment, another identity crisis. Uh, when the kids and I ended up homeless, it's like, you know, the, st the stuff that kept me alive and thriving during that time was everything to do with sex education sex work, like, you know, really journaling. I had these journals, like full fucking journals of just me speaking to myself and, and affirming my worth and affirming my beauty and affirming my capacity through the lens of sexuality. And if I did not have that at the time, I genuinely think I would have lost my mind. I remember once being, being put on antidepressants in 2006, seven or eight um, following this pregnancy issue. And it was the most terrifying thing that ever happened to me. I had no feeling in my body at all. Um, I mean, I'm sure people know what I'm talking what I'm referencing right now. It was like, actually, I felt like a shell of a human being. And so when I came off of those, that was my first thing. And then after I had my kids, when I wasn't in a happy marriage, my body shut down 
And I honestly thought that it was from damage from childbirth. And I convinced myself of this story for so long. And I remember calling my best friend and saying, like, I don't want sex. I don't care about sex. I'm not this. And she's like, what the fuck? Like, this is not normal. But I would make excuses. I'm touched out. The breastfeeding, the this. And I realized, like, in hindsight, again, the way your body responds to misalignment is your sexual appetite disappears. And I'll say that in business, this is not like, I'm not even just trying to sound like uh, I'm the fucking ultimate sexual scryer, but I can look at people and read their aura and read their energy. And I can tell you when the last time they had sex was, right? Or intimate with themselves or anything else. And I can directly link lack of success in a business to sexual energy, right? So whether someone is static and stagnant or fluid and dynamic and moving, and you will, you can always mark my words, look at the people who are like genuinely, right? Their aura is like beaming, they're effervescent, and you will come to find out that they have this incredibly like dynamic, beautiful portfolio of intimacy in their life. And that's why for me as a creator, as a builder of things, I know that if I'm not nurturing my insides, then no bricks make themselves available for me to build on the outside. And the bricks appear one orgasm at a time. I feel like that needs to be on a t-shirt. So obviously I've had the opportunity to work with you in the social media slay school, which is absolutely incredible for those of you that just the radicalization i guess for the relationship with social media for me it's it's just one of those those pieces that i send my students all the time like just follow angel's account because even if they don't take that thank you it it's just that that humanization that's that piece that really spoke to me back because i have a sales background i used to be a retail travel consultant and just that burn and churn relationship with humans Mm -hmm. it's just not it's not my desire. It's nothing I've, I've ever jammed with. So I, I love the fact you're giving a voice to this. Um, so definitely check out Angel's account. What's next? What's next for you? I love that burn and churn thing with humans, dude. That was really good. I'm going to have to journal on that afterwards. Um, I really appreciate what it is you just said. I really, 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 really am terrified of the whole world uh, dying on the inside from elixithemia, which is like a lack of connection, a lack of attention, a lack of people being with each other. And, you know, just like all those years ago, I was like, how am I going to get out of this town using socials? Now I feel like a pro-social approach on the vehicle that everyone is using. There's two things two places on the internet people are spending all their time, porn and social media. And my goal was always to get onto the two busiest places on the internet and change the world from the inside. And I feel like that I'm still on mission and I'm still on that path. And I think that if I can just keep showing people how they can use things that they previously demonized to actually exercise their demons and become the best version of themselves, then I'm onto something, but I just have to keep kind of going, going that route. And you will, you will also know martyr heretic vibes is when you're working in spaces like that, people will make you the villain and they will make you the hero 
one toss of a coin at a moment's notice. And I think that what's next for me is just being even more audacious, more brave, more vulnerable in this new era of no more fucks left to give because I have lost everything I needed to lose, to lose. And now I'm here to win everything I was meant to win. There's this kind of like hunger and like, I'm not accepting no for an answer that is making me like frighteningly ambitious with what comes next. And it's no surprise that this was born in the most tumultuous time of social media ever, 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 ever. Like in the history of social media this last year, I think it's so ironic that I I launched this course and then three months later, the internet shit itself. I'm like, of course I did this and I created this like, okay, let's go. Um, I was like, of course you sign a contract with Pornhub right before they start getting prosecuted by fundamentalist Christians. Of course you did that. Like, and now like moving through all of it and I'm still here on the other side and I'm still fighting for it. Like, Yes, we both have a hundred percent survival rate. You know what I mean? Like, even if right now you lost everything and you're in a dumpster fire and you're living in a cardboard box, you still survived. And that to me, like the winning odds to just keep going and just keep choosing what makes you feel alive over and over and over again. That's all I've got. Like moving forward, that is all I've got. I I don't have plans to do anything other than just pursue what makes me happy. Now, from a philanthropic perspective. That's different because I'm, you know, I've always done, like, I really, really am Aquarius. Like, I really am Aquarius. <laughs> Cannot get more Aquarius than me in the sixth house. Um, Conjunct Jupiter. I just have this thing of, like, I have always loved babies and I've always loved animals and I've always loved the elderly and I've always been passionate about certain things and it's kind of how I keep my karmic balance in check. And, um, it also brings me immense joy to, to do these things. So right now I'm in Bali, I'm building an animal rescue and I'm terrified because it's a huge, huge, huge project. So it's been self-funded the last eight months. And now I'm finally needing to reach out to people for help because I can't, I physically cannot do this on my own anymore because I will die. Um, there is so many dogs. There, there are so many dogs that need help here. So many cats, so many monkeys, so many cows, so many pigs. Like it is just insane. Every rescue is independently run. There's no government support. Uh, many of the locals are, you think you're crazy. There's a lot of poisoning. There's a lot of eating. There's a lot of death. Um, but I'm at this amazing kind of, again, like perfect place where the third largest audience on TikTok is Indonesia. Uh, same thing on Instagram, right? Third largest audience. The generational gap between kids and their parents is so huge here. I cannot even explain it to you. And so the kids are now fighting to say, like, we don't want this in our culture. We don't want the herding dogs. We don't want the eating dogs. Like, this is not a part of us anymore. And I think I'm just coming in at this perfect time right now where like the elderly people are having no choice but to kind of like, you know, die off or give up and kind of lean into this new way because it, you know, I've been coming to Bali for 10 years. It's never been like this. Something is changing and I'm really hopeful because of that. Um, and the stuff that I'm doing here, I would have never been able to do elsewhere. And I've literally worked in animal, I've, you know, managed adoption coordinations and I've 
worked in rescues in Thailand and I've done spay campaigns and I've done all sorts of different stuff. And I could never find a sustainable way to do it because it was exhausting. It was emotionally depleting. It was heartbreaking. It was expensive. And now I just so happen to be in a place where it is possible because it does cost less, albeit there's more animals. Uh, and I, I feel so fulfilled by this. There are just, there are no words to, to explain it to you. Like I, yeah, this is like, I, I mean, right now, like there's literally dogs everywhere in my house. I don't know if you see that one there too. They're everywhere. And I can't imagine a house without children and a house without animals. And so it's a big part of what it is I do. And I know that moving forward, the philanthropy investing part is going to be a major part of my kind of personality. It's always been, but I've always shied away from it. And because uh, the internet makes you feel like if you talk about things then you just want attention, but then if you don't talk about things then you're not doing enough for the world. And I think I'm just getting old enough right now to really lean into that. Um, and then a bunch of stuff with astrology and magic, which I'm really fucking excited about, right? I've been working on an alcohol line for literally three years as well. That's completely esoteric. Like there's a lot of kind of things brewing, but patience has been the biggest, biggest, biggest lesson. And this has been the longest winded answer to your question, but that's what happens when you're the whole bag of Skittles and then some, there are a lot of plates spitting in the air, but the future is clear. I'm here to be me the fullest expression of me, keep showing up creatively, keep being passionate about everything it is that I do. Don't compromise on that and keep dancing with the fucking universe while the world tells me it's the devil. So with the funding for the animal rescue, is that something that you've got live online now? So it's, can I share a link in the show notes so people can get involved? By the time this goes live, yes, there's going to be a link. Um, I was doing a ghetto for this and just kind of getting people to send things wherever. Um, but I will. I'm going to have a crowdfunding campaign and I'll do a link. I'm just kind of working out the nuts and bolts to that. I think it's the easiest way just to get people onto one website instead of, hey, can I have your account details? Can I have your account details? And I think it's important for people to see things in motion. Some really cool stuff is... Um, adopters of everything that we do they're going to get access to this doggy dopamine drip and so it's a 24-hour live stream of everything happening at the dog shelter uh and they'll i'm gonna i'm trying to make automated feeders so people online can click buttons and then that'll actually link so that food comes out or treats come out to like wings of the shelter and stuff like that and it's going to be all themed like the lost boys so like antique balinese housing and neverland and i'm wendy darling and they're all the lost boys and it's called the lost good boys company and um I, like i'm trying i'm really gamifying it and i'm really making it playful and i think i just need to give people more of a visual before i ask them for money so i'm working on that kind of bridge in between so definitely when you know post edit but i'll make sure that i drop the link thank the you notes so people can get involved so to all the esoteric entrepreneurs out there that are listening to this episode, is there any parting wisdom you wish to share with them? The bricks you need to build the things you're trying to call into reality will appear one orgasm at a time. And the more frightened you are, the more repulsed you are, the more ashamed you feel of your most creative energy, the more impossible it's going to become to make your dreams a reality. So be very, very, I mean, acutely aware of what kind of power you're rejecting before you sit around in victim mindset about all the things you can't make because, oh, for me, it's not available to me. 
I can guarantee 99.9% of the time it's you rejecting the potential you need to become that next big possibility. Perfect parting words. Thank you so much, Angel. Such a pleasure.